Since the time of Lewis and Clark, African Americans have played a significant part in shaping the state's cultural landscape. Unfortunately, most of our history books, essays, and articles fail to acknowledge the influences upon and influences of Montana's black past. Not only is it important to understand the role of African American people have had and continue to have on the state's social, political, and commercial development, but also how local, statewide, and national events, laws, and policies informed that experience. This presentation will introduce the history of several Montana laws that affected how African American residents were able to participate in society. Since the establishment of Montana Territory in 1864 through the present day, Montana has enforced laws and policies designed to address, sometimes to limit and sometimes to protect, the rights of minority populations. State and local authorities codified and regulated discriminatory practices in regard to members of the state's black, Native American, Chinese, and Japanese communities. Today I'll provide an overview of some of those legal and regulatory acts that affected African Americans in particular. I'm indebted to Glenda Spearman, who researched, compiled, and contextualized these laws for a master's thesis in political science department at the University of Montana in 1981. And Jay Smurr's Jim Crow Out West, published in 1957, is an incredibly important and groundbreaking scholarship that, until my friend Anthony published Black Montana this year, was the authority on legal aspects of Montana's discriminatory laws. Anthony's book offers a whole new perspective, exhaustive research, and invaluable insight. And so congratulations to him, and thank you. I'll admit I'm a bit intimidated to give this talk. Um, I'm sure Anthony knows much more about this topic than I do, and Delia too, if she were here. Um, nonetheless, I'll carry on, and we'll see what we can learn. To understand the beginning of Montana's legal history, it's important to know how Montana Territory developed. Montana Territory was carved from Idaho Territory in 1864. Idaho Territory had been established just the year before in 1863. Congress carved it from the eastern part of Washington Territory and the western portions of Dakota Territory and Nebraska Territory so that Idaho Territory then encompassed all of the land that is now included in the states of Idaho, Montana, and much of the part of Wyoming. These boundaries lasted little more than a year. In 1864, Congress created Montana Territory, and most of what is now the state of Wyoming was transferred back to Dakota Territory. It's all very confusing. Montana's first legislature chose to adopt Idaho Territory's laws as the framework for Montana's. So they basically are almost a carbon copy of each other. So let's start with our Montana laws and our um, African American history laws uh, with a relatively positive example. As in Idaho, Montana territory did not allow people to be taken from the territory to enslave them. So you know, that's, that's a good thing. We like that. The law established that every person who shall forcibly steal, take, or arrest any man, woman, child, either white or colored, or any Indian in this territory, and carry him or her, I'm glad they acknowledge that women too, that was nice, into another country, state, or territory, or who shall forcibly take or arrest any person or persons whatsoever with the design to take him or her out of this territory without having established a claim according to the laws of the United States, 
shall, upon conviction, be deemed guilty of kidnapping, and the law carried a penalty of no less than one year, but no more than 10 years for each offense. So I bring you to notice the caveat in that long description of the law, which was without having established claim according to the laws of the United States. In the summer of 1862, Congress had abolished slavery in the District of Columbia and federal territories, authorized the confiscation of slaves by the Confederates, formally freed all slaves who escaped to the United States Army, prohibited the Army from returning fugitive slaves, authorized the enlistment of black soldiers, and created public schools for African-American children in the District of Columbia. Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation that took effect on January 1st, 1863, declaring that all persons held as slaves within rebellious states are and henceforward shall be free. While federal fugitive slave acts were repealed in June 1864, Montana's first legislature kept this having the claim of US law in place. Uh, to allow for the possibility of other federal laws coming into play. Notably, in 1865, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery and involuntary servitude in the United States, except for his punishment to a crime, for a crime. That exception remains, astoundingly enough, <laughs> um, it remains today. But though there have been recent movements to drop that exception in Colorado in 2018 and Utah and Nebraska in 2020. In Montana, as in other states, that exception that servitude may be required as punishment for a crime has been used to defend the use of prison labor for and like chain gangs and such. Back to the first territorial legislature, we find the Montana territorial law had a lot to say about who could and could not vote. It's pretty straightforward. White male citizens, 21 years and older, could vote in federal, territorial, and local political elections. The law also restricted school district voters to every white male inhabitant over the age of 21 years who shall be paid uh, or be liable to pay any district tax, so you had to be a taxpayer, um, and shall be a legal voter in any school meeting. Just to be sure, the legislators added that no other person shall be allowed to vote. This limitation would come into play later when we discuss some school segregation laws. Congress considered and sent the 14th Amendment to be ratified by the states in 1866. The amendment not only recognized African Americans as citizens, but also said that states could not, quote, abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. To deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. By 1867, the first Reconstruction Act required former Confederate states to allow African-American men to vote. And the same year, Congress passed the Territorial Suffrage Act, giving black men in the territories the right to vote. So amid all of this, this is actually a drawing um, from Harper's Weekly that depicts the first African-American voters in the state of Virginia um, in this year, 1867. 
So the city of Helena, Montana, decided they were going to experiment, and that was the word they used, the experiment, in allowing African-American voting in their 1867 city commission elections. And members of the local Republican Party encouraged black people to go to the polls. However, local Democrats and white bullies intimidated and threatened violence toward prospective voters. An Irish rioter murdered Sammy Hayes in the melee. And according to Smur, the marshal had to fight his way through a hostile crowd when taking the man to the courthouse. That year, the state codes confirmed that only white men could le vote legally in Montana. The 1867 laws also, by the way, confirmed that chain gangs were legal, even at the local level. Forced labor prisoners could be punished with solitary confinement and limited to bread and water if they refused to work. The 14th Amendment granted black people citizenship in 1868, but as it turned out, did not guarantee suffrage. So they had to pass another amendment to confirm that, and that was the 15th Amendment, which was ratified in 1870. And in Montana, the 1871 and 72 code extended voting rights to all male citizens. Um, and of course, that didn't include Native American people because they were not considered citizens until 1924. As elsewhere in the United States, incidents of voter intimidation and suppression continued and continue to plague Montana. The 1864 territorial laws also enumerate restrictions on African-Americans' ability to participate in legal proceedings. To help everyone understand exactly who was who, the law also defined what they called mulatto people as those who, quote, shall have one-eighth part or more Negro blood, and every person who shall have one-half Indian blood shall be deemed an Indian. African-Americans, Chinese, and Native American residents of the state could not testify at trials that involved white litigants. They could, however, provide witness statements and accounts in trials involving members of their own race. While restrictions on witnesses disappeared from the Montana codes in 1871 and 72, the legislature retained the law that provided only white men could serve as jurors and serve summons. This is a happy, happy talk, isn't it? It gets worse. The 14th and 15th Amendments ushered in a wave of legal revisions. As we've seen, at least on the surface, the 1871-72 Territorial Codes repealed restrictions on African-American participation in voting and legal proceedings. However, as some rights were established, others were taken away. In 1872, Montana passed a school segregation law. Here I borrow from Delia Hagan and Barbara Behan when they say, what became known as the Segre Segregation Bill was initially introduced in 1872 in the House of Representatives, originally um, by a gentleman named Daniel Searles, who is from New York. And he, was, uh, he actually got the endorsement of the leading Republican newspaper, the Herald of Hel um, Helena, and they supported the bill from the first. When the bill, which provided for the segregation of black school children, was considered in council, Granville Stewart, who had an indigenous wife and children, uh, opposed it. Granville Stewart um, spearheaded the review of this proposed law, and he and his committee thoroughly amended the House bill, but not, did not alter the section on segregation. 
For the most part, debates over the bill reflected the legislators' shared anti-black racism and seemed to center on the practical and legal issues rather than any moral ones. When it came to legal authority, it was argued that the 14th Amendment of 1868 didn't apply to territories, so a territory, quote, could legislate stringently against non-whites. But legislating segregation and putting it into consistent practice were two different things. Almost nowhere in the territory was it financially practical to have two public schools. And there was considerable controversy on whether how to educate the few African-American children in several of the towns. The bill stipulated that the education of children of African descent shall be provided for in, public, in separate schools. It was modeled on a California bill passed two years earlier. And the bill allowed Montana school districts to build separate schools whenever there were more than 10 African-American children. Notably, California's law codified segregation practices that had existed in the state at least since 1866, while Montana's law was depriving them of rights that they had formerly enjoyed. School officials wasted no time trying to purge the few black children from the classrooms in their jurisdictions. In Deer Lodge, where previous census showed only 15 colored residents, quote unquote, in the entire county, America Turner soon received notice from Granville Stewart and his fellow district, school district directors that her son was not entitled to a place in the public school and he will not be admitted. Despite the teacher's protests at the student's dismissal, Granville Stewart, whose Native American children attended the same school, um, and his ilk prevailed. In other towns, too, purged black children from their primary schools. Virginia City had a short-lived separate schooling arrangement, as did Fort Benton. In Fort Benton, a black school was reportedly opened in 1878, but apparently it closed by 1882. Thereafter, a conflict arose over the enrollment of a handful of black children in the public school for whites. Four white families withdrew their children when two girls of partial African-American descent were admitted to the school. Similar events unfolded in White Sulphur Springs, where the city's four African-American children were denied entree to the local school. The effort to segregate schools under the 1872 legislation, however, reached its fullest expression in Helena, the territorial capital and home of the largest African-American community at that time. Helena became ground zero for the early fight over school segregation in Montana Territory. In 1875, Helena's African-American community contained 19 school-aged children. That year, some of these children's parents attempted to enroll them in the Hill Street School. An education for their children was something that they were anxious to get, quote, because of the prejudice against their race. In response to this attempted enrollment, the Helena School Board reorganized the city's public schools, creating the segregated Southside School for children um, deemed, quote, unquote, colored. Creating an entire separate school for so few students, they did this at great expense. The Southside School, quote, operated for three months during 1875 at an average of the cost of $50 per student versus the average of $10 for other children. The black community immediately began protesting the exclusion of its children. In 1876, 106 Mont Helena black and white residents submitted one of many petitions to the Montana legislature to repeal the law. School segregation, the petitioners argued, was unnecessary and effectively barred black children from an education. The House Education Committee rejected the peti petition, 
and the protests of the black community and its allies fell on deaf ears. The school segregation law and Helena's segregated South Side School remained in place. And I, you can, I don't know if you can read it. Do I have the light? This right here, I believe, was the Helena's South Side School. I don't have any overview pictures of it. It was in a residential part of the neighborhood. Um, if you know where the fire tower is in Helena, um, kind of south of that, um, between the fire tower and Rodney Street, is where um, this particular school was located. And it was originally just kind of a log house structure, one room kind of crib. And um, there was they did put some investment in the school and they actually bricked it up. Um, and so it was a brick schoolhouse for a lot of the time it existed there in the south side. So I didn't find any references to a segregated school in Butte. And if there was one, um, please let me know. But I could not find any reference to it in any of the newspapers um, or other documents that I was scouring. The 1870 census places only one black man living in Butte. But by 1880, the Bruce family's four children, the Johnston's five and the Johnson's five together, would have satisfied the requirement for a separate school. Amazingly, school separation continued to be the law of the land until 1883, though the law appears again in the 1887 recodification of Montana laws. And it doesn't disappear from the Montana codes until 1895 which ironically is the year before the Plessy v. Ferguson established separate but equal doctrine. Indeed, the late 1800s witnessed substantial violence, intimidation, discrimination, and over the turn of the century, Montana legislatures codified many of these practices. Post-Reconstruction Montana was a place of segregation, and other racist structures and practices characterized life in the territory. One particular incident took place in Butte in 1881 and resulted in a court case that invoked the 14th Amendment and its events are known as the Chop House Affair. Oh, this is a fun picture of the Garfield School in Butte um, and they're included in the photograph of three African-American children, um, but of course this would be after the segregated uh, law was repealed. So, let me go back. I had another one. Okay. So let's set the stage. William Woodcock was a well-known and well-liked resident of Helena. He was born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1852, and he arrived in Montana during the 1870s as a servant to Lieutenant Joshua W. Jacobs, who served at Fort Shaw. While in Jacobs' service, Woodcock participated in the campaign of the Battle of the Little Big Hole in August 1877, and he also married Teresa Lewis at the fort, in 1878. Jacobs and the young couple then moved the, with the 7th Infantry to Fort Snelling in Minnesota, and they appear there um, in, with their baby daughter Blanche in the 1880 census. But by 1881, they had returned to Montana. This time Helena, in Helena, where Woodcock got a job as a servant to Alexander Campbell Botkin. A prominent Republican, Botkin had been the United States Marshal for the Montana ter Territory since 1878. And in 1880, he lost the use of his legs as a result of an illness following exposure during a winter storm. Um, and he used a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He remained active in the law and politics, rising to Lieutenant Governor in 1893. 
But here's what happened in 1881, according to Mr. Woodcock, as told by the Butte Miner. On a September evening in 1881, Mr. Woodcock accompanied his employer, Mr. Alexander Botkin, to dinner with Botkin's brother, a druggist in Butte. They entered the Virginia Chop House, a popular establishment located near the corner of Broadway and Main in Butte. Unfortunately, that building no longer stands, as far as I can tell. So the party entered the building, and at this point I always kind of picture like an Oliver Stone movie, you know, like they enter the building and they take a seat at this table, and all the angles. So they entered the building, and the brothers took a seat at the table just to the right of the entrance. Another party that included a gentleman named Stephen Higgins and his friends seated themselves at the same table, so kind of those commutative um, seating arrangements, leaving Mr. Woodcock without a seat. Woodcock often sat right next to Mr. Bodkin to assist him during his meals. On this occasion, he took the seat to, at the nearest table immediately to the left and in front of the door. There was a young man already seated at that table who left the table with, quote, expressions of disgust. We can only imagine what he said. According to Woodcock, Mr. Fisk, the proprietor, then told the waiter to tell Woodcock to leave the table, that he would be served, and that he would not be served a meal in the restaurant. Colonel Bodkin asked Fisk if there was any objection to Woodcock eating at his table, but Woodcock felt too aggrieved to eat and sat nearby waiting for Bodkin's party to finish their meal. Fisk claimed that he only asked Woodcock to sit at a different table, which made Woodcock very angry, according to Fisk. Bodkin asked if Woodcock could eat with him, and Fisk said, certainly. But Woodcock refused, saying, according to Fisk, quote, he would not eat in that damned house if he knew he could not eat where he chose. So then, maybe because Woodcock worked for the, federal mar or the US Marshal, um, he filed a civil claim in the US District Court at Deer Lodge under the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act of 1875. He asked for $500 in damages because he had been denied equal privileges at the chop house with a white person. The district court decided in Woodcock's favor in December of 1883. So he got his 500 bucks. The case is very interesting for a number of reasons. First, of course, that in the discriminatory environments of Montana during the 1880s that a judge decided in his favor. It should have been big news, but the newspapers did not make a big deal of it. Historian Smur suggests that to do so would have encouraged other people to sue, and that risked the case going to the territorial Supreme Court, or even the US Supreme Court, something most whites wanted to avoid. As it was, the case made little difference in how black people were treated in Montana, and indeed by the turn of the 20th century, things were only going to get worse. There's the chop house affair. I like to see. I like to imagine them sitting at the tables and what ensued. I don't know if you can all see them all sitting at the ad. International Register document African American Heritage Places, Delia Hagen explains, using quotes from Barbara Behan's excellent Forgotten Heritage, that, quote, Woodcock's 1883 victory notwithstanding, discrimination in Montana continued to take both legal and illegal forms. Racism in the workplace relegated black people to low-wage, demanding jobs and kept them from and in certain industries. One of the largest employees in Montana was 
the Anaconda Company, and from its beginning, the company, quote, did not hire black workers. During the 1894 Capitol fight, the Colored Citizen newspaper claimed that while the Anaconda Company gave, quote, employment to thousands of men, not a single colored citizen can be found among them. Yea, even more, we learned that no N-word allowed in our works is the unanimous sentiment of those who control the company as well as those who are employed by the company. Helena had its share of Jim Crowism. Several black people wrote into the Colored Citizen in 1894, complaining of and exposing Helena's restaurant's refusal to serve them. As Her Helena native Norman Crump Howard recalled, racism thrived in this period. He said, quote, black face blacks faced discrimination. They were excluded from nearly every restaurant in town and held low paying jobs and you better not go into a bar to get a drink. Such racism was no secret. In July 1908, the Plain Dealer reported that up at the head of Wall Street on Main is a little cheap, old, dirty restaurant which has the nerve to put up the sign, no colored trade solicited. It seemed that unless a trade was, change was made, these public eating houses would ban black people altogether. Such discrimination extended to other public places as well. Perdita Duncan of Butte recalled, you just kept out of certain places, and by the time I was coming along, there were still just certain places I couldn't go, so I just never bothered. In Billings, residents including Eunice Terry recalled that well into the 1950s, black residents weren't allowed to try clothing on in department stores sit anywhere in movie theaters, or swim in public pools unless the water would be cleaned the next day. There was a practice of discouraging minorities from buying property in certain areas of town. That's in Billings, but we also know in other communities as well. During the first decades of the 20th century, the, black, the Montana legislature passed several Jim Crow laws intended, intended to limit the rights of black people and other minority groups. For example, in 1907, a new law prohibited non-members of fraternal orders and other organizations, including the Benevolent and Protective Order of the Elks, we were at the Elks Club last night, um, from wearing those organizations' insignias in public. In 1908, Helena musician William Holland was found guilty, twice at the local court and in the next court up, of wearing a diamond pin with the Elks insignia to his wedding. They arrested him at his wedding for wearing the pin. Though Holland said the pin's insignia indicated his membership in the African-American club called Improved Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks of the World, the juries determined that the eye was too difficult to see on the pin. The case went to the Montana Supreme Court where the law was struck down as unconstitutional. Fortunately, the judge and the court held that, quote, this act is so obnoxious to the Equal Protection of Law Clause of the 14th Amendment in the Federal Constitution, and further that a statute would distribute, which distributes its burden unequally upon those who occupy the same relation to its subjects, or punishes one citizen for doing another, which another may do with impunity, or abridges the liberty of one without imposing the like restriction upon the other, does not furnish the equal protection of laws guaranteed by Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. So, yay, Montana Supreme Court. The idea of banning interracial marriage in Montana began with the first territorial legislature. 
1864, Idaho Territory disallowed marriages and cohabitation between white people and African Americans, Chinese, and Native American people. The law was allowed for marriages that were already established when the, before the law went into effect. When writing the Montana laws the same year, uh, Representative A.E. Mayhew introduced Bill Number 19, which mirrored the Idaho law. Though initially passed by the Judiciary Committee, Granville Stewart again, who was married to a Native American woman, um, and other legislators rejected the bill on the third reading, sending it back to committee where it died. Um, and in 1866, a similar bill also failed. Although the bill failed to become law, interracial couples certainly experienced discrimination and even violence. In 1893, in Glendive, Montana, John Orr, a white man, married Emma Wall, a black woman. A mob of white residents surrounded the couple, stripped off their clothes, painted John black using lamp black, and Emma white using albestine, and the mob gave the couple 24 hours to leave town. The anti-miscegenation law issue rose again uh, when Senator Charles Muffley of Townsend, Montana, introduced Senate Bill 71 in the 1907 legislature. It would have banned marriages between white people and African American, Chinese, Japanese, and Native American people. By 1909, Muffley again introduced a similar bill, but this time he left Native American people off the list of banned spouses. After much debate and political maneuvering, the bill became law. The Anti-Miscegenation Act of 1909 made it illegal for whites to marry or cohabitate with African American, Chinese, or Japanese people, and penalized those who performed such marriages. A woman named Maud Healy lived in Livingston, Montana, and her Irish husband, Thomas, had died by 1900. And she appears in the census living on South D Street with her three children in 1900, and all four members of the family are identified with a B for black. In subsequent censuses, the family members are identified as mulatto and eventually as white. Interestingly, the children had white spouses, begging the question if they rejected their African-American heritage in exchange for their marriages. The Montana Supreme Court upheld the law in 1943's Ta Takahashi estate case. Mr. Takahashi was born in Japan and moved to Montana in 1912. He married Vivian Takahashi in Spokane in 1915. Um, and when he died in 1941 without a will, the state refused to grant his wife standing in the probate proceedings. The court ruled that their marriage was, not, was void according to Montana state law. So that uh, law was in effect until 1953 when they finally repealed it. In 1955, I'm sorry, the Montana Federation of Colored Women's Clubs took an active role in lobbying for equal rights and non-discrimination laws in the state and local um, level. Their archives reveal their efforts to influence and encourage the legislature to take up anti-discrimination bills. And in 1951, House Bill 58 sought to, quote, prohibit and certain practices of discrimination by employers, et cetera. The bill lost a floor vote, 32 in favor and 42 against. Also in 1951, the bill con legislative considered a bill to, quote, guarantee full and equal enjoyment of all places of public accommodation, and it did not pass. In 1955, an anti-discrimination accommodations law very similar to the 1951 House Bill 391, did pass. So they said, yes, we're not going to discriminate, but the bill actually stripped any um, 
language to that effect and all penalties from the bill. So it said, yeah, you can't do it, but there were no penalties attached to discriminating. As we've seen, discrimination of accommodations continued well after the law went into effect and continues today. Various groups, including the League of Women Voters, included African-American members and worked on a number of issues, including equal rights. Um, these issues were addressed in the 1972 Montana Constitutional Convention. While the Constitution did not include an equal rights clause, it did, Article 2 does say that the, quote, dignity of the human being is invaluable. No person shall be denied the equal protection of laws. Neither the state nor any person, firm, corporation, or institution shall discriminate against any person in the exercise of his civil or political rights on the account of race, color, sex, culture, social origin, or condition, or political or religious ideals. So that's in the 1972 Constitution. In 1974, Montana enacted the Human Rights Act, which further enumerated and codified anti-discrimination laws. There's the League of Women Voters um, and the women of the CONCON. I just had to throw in a picture of um, Geraldine Travis. She represented Great Falls in the Montana House of Representatives in the 1975 session. I know I'm running out of time, but um, she moved to Great Falls in 1967 and became very active in the local Democratic Party. Um, and she had worked on Shirley Chisholm's presidential campaign. And she was one of 20 Montana delegates at the Montana Democratic National Convention in Florida. Um, and in 1974, she was elected to the Montana State House of Representatives, where she introduced five bills, and uh, three of them, I believe, passed. Um, so she was quite successful, but nonetheless, she lost um, the next election in 1976 and did not return to the Montana legislature, but remained quite active in Montana politics until she left the state in 18, 1989. In conclusion, many more recent walls have addressed racial profiling, created sentencing enhancements for offenses, because of the victim's race, creed, religion, color, national origin, or involvement in civil rights and human rights activities, and clarified that sentences handed down for those convicted of a crime, quote, must be neutral res with respect to the offender's race. In the end, we're all indebted to the tireless, selfless efforts of many generations of black Montanans, from those who'd endured violence and discrimination to those that fought against the racist systems in place in Montana and across the nation. Thank you.